0: Hello, and welcome back to Full Circle, a healthcare podcast by Aventus Whole Health. I'm your host, Kim Howell. This week's episode is February's edition of Around the Table, our case study series that drops the last week of every month. Join our clinical leaders as they explore cases brought to us by you, our trusted clinicians in long-term care. Sitting at this month's table are Dr. Sarah Gramet, Chief Medical Officer for North Carolina; Dr. Sandy Patel, Associate Chief Medical Officer for Primary Care; Dr. Ethan Levine, Director of Psychotherapy. Dr. Monica Larici, Vice President of Pharmacy, and Dr. Stephen McDonald, Chief Medical Informatics Officer. Let's listen in.
1: Welcome everybody. Today, we're going to talk about one of our patients who is an 88-year-old woman who lives in a continuing care community where she has lived in the assisted living facility and been to the skilled side of the building and back again several times in the last year start talking about her case from about a month ago. And she's 88 and she has multiple medical problems, which include congestive heart failure. She had a recent bilateral pleural effusion for which she had a thoracocentesis on the left side. She also has chronic atrial fibrillation, hypertension, diabetes, hypothyroid, depression, anxiety, and what appears to be recurrent urinary tract infections, as well as hyponatremia and hypomagnesemia, all in the last couple of months. She also has uh, elevated cholesterol and chronic pancreatitis as well. So she was seen and actually sent to the hospital this summer for encephalopathy which was found to be a urinary tract infection and she was also found to be hypomagnesemic at that time she got fluids and magnesium through iv and pretty much very quickly started to feel better but was hospitalized for a few days given iv antibiotics and fluids and felt a lot better was sent to her skilled nursing facility which is where she was seen here for follow up she does occasionally have hypoxia which was quite significant when she went to the hospital, but appears to be back to baseline. So she's not on continuous oxygen at this time. And one of the issues was that her diuretics had to be doubled after her thoracocentesis. And according to her primary care provider, this seems to have stabilized on the higher dose of Lasix. With that, we'll open up for questions about her hair and what we think. One of the issues we had been talking about is that she has come forth between her assisted living and the skilled facility, which can definitely have an effect on someone's mental status. And with somebody who has underlying depression and anxiety, that could be very anxiety provoking to have to change back and forth. Did anyone want to jump in to talk about her?
2: I'll say something, Sarah. I guess just starting off talking about going back and forth and personal experience, just unnecessarily. ALF to SNF, but just any kind of changing in transition of care from one either home or, you know, ALF or SNF, you know, there's still health benefits or problems going back and forth. I think we we try to, as providers, make sure we're aware of the transition and how it can affect the mental health. I don't think we do it as much because we always think it's medication-induced, not necessarily just due to changing an environment. So I know having family involved is critical during this stage in your life, in your late 80s and 90s, to just having that family support. That makes a big difference. We got to be it's aware that it's not always medication induced because we kind of like to say it's a delirium from certain medications if they're on any kind of, you know, a narcotic or, you know, antipsychotic of that nature. So I guess I just want to say that we need to really be aware of the just the changing location that has to affect people's mental health at that age and how we need to really lean on families to kind of help them transition and kind of help us manage patient. Mm.
1: So Thank you. It's really out. true. That is really yeah. true.
2: Now, I'll comment on people that
3: come into a skilled nursing facility, whether it be from home or just whatever their prior relatively independent state of living was, whether it be ALF, ILF, or home. Just understanding that the environment that they're about to come into, much like Dr. McDonald alluded to, is it's going to be very different. There's going to be a lot of regimens involved where you won't have as much liberty to do things at your will as maybe you were used to. There's going to be more frequent touch points, i.e. your sleep may not be as sound as a result of the constant mod- monitoring processes that are in place in a skilled nursing facility, let alone a post-acute care part of the facility, you add to that the need for or the interventions of aggressive nutrition monitoring, aggressive rehabilitation, adding adding those pieces to what normally would not necessarily be present in their prior state of living adds further stressors. It's intended for positive benefit, but it actually adds further stressors to the patient. So I think understanding the environment that they're coming into and being empathetic to that allows us to better understand and anticipate what the potential pitfalls on that patient's mental state would be. Personally speaking, I see a lot of patients, even without any underlying substrate or firm diagnosis of mental health disorder before coming in, get into significant issues with adjustment disorders, which then... Creates problems uh, with sleep, wake, cycle disturbances, anorexia, poor participation with therapy, and thereby getting other complications, prolonged length of stay, further debility, and ultimately can actually lead to long term care institutionalization if not properly handled. But I would be curious to see where psychotherapy falls into this grand scheme of things as patients transition from one environment to the other. So I would love to hear a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple
4: things that stand out right away. To Dr. McDonald's point about family being critical, it's very clear in the chart notes bolded at the top patient is a poor historian due to cognitive psychiatric impairment, and they're minimally dosed with a psychiatric medication. But I don't have any clear evidence in any of the notes. What's the baseline? And if I understood what the baseline is, then. A, is this really, you know, they're diagnosed with anxiety and major depressive disorder. Is this accurate? And if it's accurate, we ought to be treating it. One thing that stands out in looking at the list of the notes, there was no psychotherapy and no psychiatry involvement at this point that I could see. We need to get a deeper dive on the assessment. Are these accurate diagnoses? And certainly, you know, how are we going to treat them? Major depressive disorders, pretty substantial and is based on recurrence over time or a substantiated, serious level of depression. To Dr. Patel's point, certainly from an adjustment standpoint, this person's gone through so much. I think any of us would feel both anxious and depressed. The role that psychotherapy can play is really helping being supportive and helping with the transition, helping the person stay as calm as possible. And have essentially an anchor point to maintain their emotional and really in cognitive state. I've seen over and over that it's it's not just the person stabilizes emotionally, they stabilize cognitively if they have regular routine visits with the therapist that help bring out what's what their experience of what's going on, rather than having them feel like they're being left in the void and being treated here, being treated there, being moved here. That's chaotic. And for somebody who has some evidence of a cognitive impairment, it can be extremely frightening. So getting more of a baseline, understanding more of what the accurate diagnosis and having a more aggressive intervention to help keep the person stable might help them avoid a future sniff stay.
2: Uh, I, Thank I, you I totally, so I'm much. Sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, sure. go ahead, can Steve. I, can I, can I, no, I, I totally agree with Ethan said and Dr. Patel. I'd be curious to know just from my experience, I've seen people leave from a SNF-ray right left to the hospital and they start getting all these mental health diagnoses that they never had before. Anxiety, depression, paranoia. And you look back, you're like, they never had this before. So they start getting put on these medications in the hospital. Seroquel and things like that, Trazodone that they weren't on before. So they go from not really having mental health issues to having that just from transition. And if they're in the hospital for a significant amount of time, then they stay on a Seroquel forever or a Trazodone or something like that. So I think it it needs to be, you have to be real careful on put these diagnoses. I mean, that's, this is a broader kind of conversation with hospital employees, hospital providers, but mm. be careful. You need, like you said, have to have a baseline of how they were before to see if that's how they were before they came to the hospital. Because I've seen people with dementia having surgery and all of a sudden it gets magnified after mm. being in the hospital for a significant amount of time. But they didn't have advanced dementia when they went there, but they left with it. So is it the dementia or is it from being in the hospital a couple of weeks?
4: I'd, I'd I reinforce know. that Steve, because like tragedy you know, and in particular, it's like my experience is given out like M&Ms. Well, you're not sleeping well. Let's give you some Trazodone. That'll help.
2: And they stay on that forever. So, yeah. Right. No one wants to take it off. You know, I've done hospice. I've been a hospice and they can come in on it. You're kind of hesitant to take them off of it. You're like, OK, but, you know, I fight with my. Being working in the long-term care space or working in the hospital, of fighting, putting people on stuff and taking them off when you're in a different, different setting. Then you take them off of it. You send them back to the SNF or ALF. You know, Why would you take them off to trazodone? Well, right. do they really need it? So it's kind of that push and pull battle between levels of care that you're fighting depending on where they are and what type of medication you feel and how they're doing in that environment. It's a very interesting type of situation. I
4: I want to reinforce something that you just said, Steve, which is that I see it over and over where somebody goes to the hospital, comes back, medicines were changed, and unless somebody's astute and looking at the medication regimen in the facility, then you wonder why something's going on that's different. And it may be as simple as they took somebody on or off something that they should have been on or off.
1: Yeah. I just wanted to bring up the diagnosis or disorder of adjustment disorder, because I feel like that's probably accurate for a lot more of our people than we think, as opposed to like a full blown depression, especially if it's more temporary and acute confusion secondary to a hospitalization or ICU stay. So just bring kind of tying together, Ethan and Steve, your comments that sometimes these can be short-term problems that don't need to be medicated forever. And this is why I love our psychotherapy team, which can kind of bridge that, the medications and just, just... Talk therapy that really can try to avoid extra medications. For example, this young lady, our 88 year old woman, was on amitriptyline at bedtime as needed. And I'm guessing that was for anxiety, not 100% sure, but I think I do think that medicine came off later, but it does concern me that that we're adding medication sometimes instead of kind of well she's been on the proxetine is it really helping what is the actual symptom that we're treating here and is it something temporary was it because of the changes like you all mentioned or is it something that we can have better support for her mental health and it looks like unfortunately i think this building may not have our integrated team but this is a great reason to see why and how that can be so super helpful for our patients our integrated team Monica.
5: Yeah, thanks. I love hearing you guys talk. (laughs) It does. It brings up so much for me to think about when you're discussing a patient and to hear you talking about simplifying for this patient as they're going through these transitions from SNF to AL and back and forth. There is certainly room for simplification in her drug regimen. And I see some notes from the primary care for this patient that they were attempting to do some some deprescribing and some regimen reduction on her medications, which is great because by my count, she is on 13 different medications routinely. And this is a pill burden of 22 tablets and capsules that she is swallowing daily. And guys, that doesn't even add the nine capsules of Creon she is taking every day for pancreatitis. So that's 31 tablets and capsules she is swallowing every day. And when you talk about simplification and the possibility of missing a diagnosis or a medication, she's at extreme risk for that. And what's more is when I look at this list, One of the things that jumps out to me that I appreciated was they talk about wanting to discontinue a Flomax, which is interesting because I don't know why she was on the Flomax. I see that there was some probably for some bile obstruction or bile duct obstructions that she's had in the past, but they talk about DCing the statin. And I thought, well, yeah, she's she's 88 and statins are notorious for causing pancreatitis, but she's also on fenofibrate, which can cause pancreatitis as well. So I think there's definitely some room to look at what her risks are versus what our desired outcomes are for her and what is our realistic care plan for her? Because it does seem to me like we're very aggressive in, in places that maybe we could be doing more harm than good at this point. From our medication standpoint, there's a couple of Mm. others like the omeprazole twice a day, (laughs) which omeprazole can cause pancreatitis and she's on a B12, which omeprazole can decrease her absorption of B12 as well. So there's a lot to look at here. And when you Mm. mentioned the PRN amitriptyline, absolutely. How often is she using that? Right. Because if she came back from the hospital and started using that for a while, well, that could Cause some of this confusion that she might have been having. Does it come and go from that use? Um, we know that amitriptyline can cause, certainly cause some QT issues, and she does have a history of AFib. So, you know, are we are we causing more arrhythmia concerns just from the medication standpoint? Obviously, as the pharmacist, I'm going to come back and say, you know, let's reexamine the medication needs here. But some thoughts on that, and Dr. Patel. Did you have some? I'm sure you have some thoughts on that in those comments on our medications.
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, I think as we've talked through this, we, we talk about transitions of care, and that can be between home to AL, AL to sniff, sniff to hospital. AL to hospital, hospital back to home, hospital back to AL. So all of these points, i.e. TOCs or transitions of care, are opportunities combining what everyone has said on this call uh, for, number one, what was the patient's prior baseline and are we anywhere near that? So when we talk about mental status and cognitive capacity, it's always one of those checklist items that when we see a new patient being admitted or readmitted back, is asking ourselves what is their baseline, both physical and mental. Number two, reconciling those meds. What were they on before versus now, and is there a continued need for whatever they are on now coming in from the hospital? So I think everyone made great points about that. And then I do think then once they are kind of back with us, making a concerted effort to question every man on an ongoing basis. In a skilled nursing facility, the luxury we have is we could probably make GDRs and deprescribing attempts much more vigorously and quicker than we can in a less supervised environment. So it's a benefit that we have, and quite honestly if we have patients in those environments, we take advantage of that fact. Some of those medications mentioned, namely the tamsulosin, which I'm guessing is probably used at some point for urinary retention. Urologists are using it more and more for that indication. But the issue of orthostasis with that in conjunction with a relatively higher dose of diuretic therapy in an elderly patient. So I do worry about the blood pressure management, orthostasis, and hence fall risk as a result. Do we need it on every day? Can Is it feasible to take tamsulosin and monitor urinary signs and symptoms, take it down to every other day and and take it off altogether if they continue to tolerate that. And same with the diuretics. Having acute on chronic diastolic CHF, large polar effusions, it's not a reason to keep people on the same dose of diuretic all the time. Even edema, I think people misattribute that a lot of times to just CHF when, in fact, many of our patients have multiple reasons for edema. It's multifactorial, not just CHF. And diuretics, in and of themselves, if patients have baseline edema to begin with, well, my philosophy has always been, well, gradual dose reduce the diuretic to maintain whatever their baseline edema is. Don't keep it at the higher dose if you don't need it. So don't use 40 when 20 would do. And ideally, if you don't need 20, take it off altogether and monitor. So I think taking those TOCs, Reconciling all of the points, I think everyone has made, and then furthermore on an ongoing basis, taper down medication that otherwise would be set it and forget it sort of mode, and utilize the environment that you're in, and take advantage of the fact that someone came in with polypharmacy in the first place. Uh, you're in a care setting that can probably make some pretty rapid, quick beneficial moves for the patients, and take advantage of that care setting.
5: Thank you, Monica. Yeah, I'm gonna try to wrap this in a pretty little bow here to to bring about a lot of the things that were talked about as. Dr. Patel just mentioned with the the deprescribing and you know, going through the the tapering down of the medications, bringing it back to each time she moves, every time she changes, we know that those med reconciliations are not done um, to the best of our abilities when we're talking a, a patient leaving a hospital. So in sh- to go back to Dr. McDonald's point, the family knows what is going on and why. This is where family communication is absolutely vital. So they know, that these medications were removed deliberately, and here is the purpose for that removal. And they can help ensure that those transitions, medications that were stopped for a reason, don't get added back on during a faulty med review or a med reconciliation. And to Dr. Levine's point, when we get to bringing those, those family in to help explain those histories, ensuring that they know what medications have been attempted and stopped, I think it really encapsulates what we do with the interdisciplinary team in ensuring that all points aren't just communicated in our group, but are communicated so well to the family. So the family knows what was done and why and can help kind of smooth that over as we work on getting the patient to a new homeostasis.
2: Monica, I agree with everything you said. And it's almost like we need to add family to the interdisciplinary team. Family should be part of that team. I think we think of it kind of internally, but family or kind of whatever we call family needs to be added to that team to make sure everyone's on the same page of when they come back to the facility.
1: I totally agree at that point. It it is definitely harder with those who don't have accessible family or POAs. We all know for patients that we work with, you know, state-appointed folks, it's very challenging so when we have we do have that available it's is so helpful and so very important well i think we've fixed our 88 year old woman don't you <laughs> thank you everyone <laughs> thank you
0: Thank you again to all of our clinical leaders for their guidance in exploring this case study. If you have a case study that you'd like for us to explore in future Around the Table episodes, please reach out to the training and clinical education team at Aventus. You can look forward to another episode of Full Circle next Tuesday. Take care.